I've had on my heart to um, preach about Holy Communion for a while now. It's been one of those situations, you know, where it just has kept coming up in conversations over the last couple of months. Or I might be doing my um, Bible reading and again, there is um, the Lord prompting me about Holy Communion. And so really this morning, what I want to do is share with you part of my own process of re-exploring the significance and the power of communion in our lives as followers of Christ. For me, growing up, I know I've said this to you before, I didn't grow up in a Christian household per se, but we did um, go to church and that's because my parents are both Welsh and they love to sing. They're both very good choral singers. And um, so growing up, they would often find local churches that had really good choirs to be able to sing. And so when I still lived in the UK, uh, we went to the village church, which was actually a church built in Norman times. Um, I was a part of the robed choir, so I had my cassock and a frilly collar around my neck. And um, it was a, a high a Church of England or High Anglican um, a church. And because I was seated in the choir, I was right up sort of at the front in the, in the sanctuary part of the old church. And I used to watch with fascination as the priest prepared communion. There were all the various kind of bits of cloth that he draped over um, the elements, um, right down to the way that he chugged down the last bit of wine after communion had been <laughs> taken. As an adult, I kind of wonder how much backwash he was getting, but at the ch as a child, I wasn't thinking about that. Um, and so for me, in reality, communion at that stage of my life, I was confirmed at 12 within that church. And so communion really for me was just a sign of growing up. It was like a rite of passage, really, a privilege for being confirmed. And I got to sip the real wine. Um, but that was really all that I knew about communion, that it was something that you did when you kind of were old enough and you'd been confirmed to do it. And in a gathering this size, we will all have different experiences around the tradition of communion. You may have grown up in a church that took communion once a month um, as a communion service or even some churches very ceremonial, ceremoniously take communion once a year. So at Vision, we have intentionally made communion a part of our weekly services, and that's been the case for our 30-year history. And it's something that I'm really deeply grateful for. As I reflect on the fact that we have communion every week, I do think that there is a tension that comes with something that we do regularly, that sometimes something we do regularly can fall or we can fall into the trap, I guess, of it becoming ordinary and ritualised, that we kind of lose perspective on its sacredness, the power and the importance of communion in our lives as believers. In, in scripture, there actually aren't many ordinances about how we should take communion. Obviously, Jesus um, laid out some key foundational 
um, principles at the Last Supper, which are recorded in the Gospels. Uh, in Acts 2, we read about the believers of the early church. And in Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And then it talks about their supernatural lifestyle, that there was awe that had come upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And then in verse 46 of that same chapter, it says that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So we read here that communion, as we now know it, they didn't call it communion, um, was a daily practice in which... Um, where they devoted themselves to prayer, to fellowship, to the daily breaking of bread and to teaching. And as this passage in Acts reflects, it was actually a part of their spirit-led supernatural lifestyle. I think that it's really important for us to remember that the early Christian believers as Jews had a deep history and understanding for the place of the meal covenant. So for them, breaking of bread was not simply a bit of cracker and grape juice in a plastic cup. It was a full meal. And it had deep ties to their heritage as God's covenant people. Covenants, um, I was doing a little bit of reading about this, and covenants in ancient, ancient biblical times had a number of common elements to them, whether they were between two people making an agreement or whether they were between God and man. And so those key elements were that there was a promise or a commitment which was being made to which the parties would bind themselves. There would be a sacrifice followed by a meal, and often they ate part of the sacrifice as part of the meal. And then there was the establishment of a memorial, a way that served as a reminder for the parties of what they've promised and committed to. So in Exodus 12, you can read about one of the pivotal covenant meals in Israel's history. It was the point at which the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. And their deliverance centred around a covenant meal, the Passover meal. So God promised, I'm sure many of you are very familiar with this, but God promised his people that if they sacrificed a blemish-free lamb, a spotless lamb, and applied the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of their house, that he would pass over them, that they would be delivered from the plague and the death and destruction that was about to befall Egypt. And then he gave them another instruction, which was that inside their homes, they were take, to take part in a meal, a meal that consisted of the flesh of the lamb that they had sacrificed, roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And then they were clearly instructed to celebrate annually this feast as a memorial. So you can see here that it has all the elements of a covenant meal, a promise made, a sacrifice, a meal taken together, and part of that meal was part of the sacrifice that had been made, and then a memorial, something to remember the promise by. 
Interestingly, a number of the commentaries that I read looked to make a link between the reason why the Israelites left Egypt with no sickness amongst them, no weakness, they weren't feeble in any way. You can read this in Psalm 105. It talks about them leaving and no one stumbled. And that word for stumbling means weak and feeble and cast down. So these commentaries made a link between this fact that the people left um, Egypt with none of them um, sick or ill with the meal that they took the night before they left. That the blood delivered them from the death and destruction. And these commentaries suggest that eating the body of the lamb healed them from their diseases. Now, it's certainly extraordinary that a group of one to two million people, that's what they think as the number of people who left um, Egypt, they are remembering they've been generations in slavery, so they're not exactly nutritionally been eating fabulously, and that in amongst those people that no one left with weakness or sickness um, in their bodies is miraculous. I'm not sure myself it's a, if it's a little bit too long a bow to draw to make that um, uh, bridge that gap between the meal that they ate and their healing. But I do think that in the light of communion and the cross of Christ, it is certainly an interesting thing to ponder. Another really interesting detail that I found in my own um, studies of this, and if you study the ceremonial Passover meal, you would uh, find similar information, um, was that certain elements in the ceremonial Passover meal would be set aside, uh, in particular a portion of bread or unleavened bread and a glass of wine. And these were set aside in recognition of the coming Messiah. And um, many scholars believe that this is then what Jesus took at the Last Supper and handed to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body and drink all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is nothing in scripture that is done by accident. No coincidences. Every little detail is intentional and pointing to the cross of Christ. And I could, I could fill up our whole time today with many, many other details like this. It's not really where I want to head today. This is really just my introduction. Um, but what I want as I've brought these things for you to chew over and maybe it will whet your appetite to go digging yourselves and have a look into this a little bit more. But what I want you to have in mind is that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for his disciples and for the early church, this was very much already a part of their thinking. It was part of their heritage, their culture and their expression of faith as God's covenant people. So we are going to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, as promised. Um, Paul was another one who wrote um, a bit about communion for us. And I do want to say up front that um, we're going to be starting in verse 17. This is not a particularly easy passage of scripture to fully understand. And it certainly has been very open to misinterpretation 
and even, I might say, superstition. And there are certain number of things in this passage that if we take them out of context could really trip us up. So there is definitely a mystery around the sacrament of Holy Communion. And I don't believe that we need to fully understand that mystery to grasp the benefits of it for ourselves. I think as believers, we do need to be comfortable with a certain amount of mystery and the unexplainable. But that said, I guess my heart today for us as God's people is that we would have, after looking in the scriptures today, a greater sense of freedom as we approach the table and a renewed faith in the power held within this meal. Okay, so we will start um, reading in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. And this is obviously a letter that Paul has written to the Corinthian church. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He doesn't mince words, does he? Uh, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions amongst you. And I believe it in part. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He is pretty clear. And I want to start here because I think it's really important for the context of some of the tricky verses that we've got coming up. Most of you will know that this is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and in it he brings a lot of correction to this church of new believers. Corinth is a place that is renowned for its sinfulness and its immoral lifestyle. And he's had to bring correction to them about many aspects of their life together as a church and about their unruly worship. And so here, Paul is addressing division around the Lord's table. Basically, the Corinthians are treating the Lord's Supper like a common potluck dinner. They're getting drunk and pigging out. And there are divisions and factions and people who were thinking only of themselves. The rich believers were coming in and providing the food, then they were eating first, and then they were leaving nothing left over, so they were neglecting the poor. Um, they are, in their actions, despising and humiliating. They're the words that Paul uses, despising and humiliating those who have nothing and failing to make a place at the table for them. And Paul is clearly rebuking them. The Lord's table does not discriminate. At the table, 
there is a level playing field. There are not haves and have-nots. At the table, everyone has a place. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, he says this, the cup, of, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Communion is the Lord's table. It's not the church's table. And he has invited all to come. So he continues. Let's pick it up in verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. I just, I, just as a bit of a side note, I find it interesting that he talks about having received this from the Lord. We know that he wasn't at the Last Supper. And so by implication, this would mean that he himself has had some revelation around communion directly from the Lord into his own life. So I've received from the Lord what I also to deliver to you, that the Lord on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul is first reminding the Corinthians of the exact words of Jesus. And I was reading in the William Barclay commentary during the week, and he makes this interesting point, which is that for many reasons, this passage of scripture is really important for us as believers. But in fact, um, most scholars believe that the, the letter to the Corinthians was written before the Gospels. And so this is actually the first recorded words of Jesus that Paul um, is writing out for them in um, Corinth. So he tells them what Jesus taught his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And then he goes on, verse 26, and he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For as often. I think that this may answer any questions we might have about how often should we take communion. As often. As often as you like. And the early church took it daily. Another interesting thing to note in this um, verse here, this word proclaim. The word proclaim in the Greek, it means to announce, to declare, to decree, to teach and to make known. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you make known and declare the death of Jesus. You declare victory over sin, that he was crushed for your iniquities, that he was pierced for your transgressions. You announce that he bore your griefs, carried your sickness and your brokenness, and that by his stripes you are healed. 
every time we take communion, we proclaim the finished work of the cross. This is a covenant meal. It is a powerful meal, a meal that represents the fullness of all that Jesus paid the price for. Why wouldn't we consider declaring this over our life and over our family every single day? Paul continues to instruct the Corinthians, and we'll pick it up in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So what is Paul talking about here when he talks about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? Or more to the point, what is he not talking about? This is not about trying to be worthy enough to come to the table. None of us are worthy to come to the table in our own right standing. If you think that the Lord's table requires a minimum standard of worthiness, then you've missed the cross. Paul was directly reprimanding the Corinthians for the way that they were approaching the table with division and greed in a dishonourable, rude manner. They were treating it as a common meal. Basically, they were showing disgraceful table manners and misrepresenting the gospel. And if you have a quick look down at verses 33 and 34, he gives them some practical solutions. Will you take turns? And if you're really hungry, can you eat at home first or at least pick Maccas up on the way? In my family of origin, if we were having people for dinner, and particularly if it was a meal where you were serving yourself, my dad would stand there and he would say, F-H-B, family hold back. And so what that meant for us as kids is step back, let our guests serve themselves first, and then you can load up your plates. This is basically what Paul is doing. He is giving them instructions on how not to be so rude and how not to be so dishonourable around the Lord's table. What Paul is not saying is that if you have sin in your life, there is no place for you at the table. He was encouraging them to partake in a right manner, which is to recognise that the Lord's body was broken so that ours could be made whole and his blood shed and life sacrificed so ours wasn't. In verse 28, Paul goes on to say, Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is a hard verse. I think this phrase alone has put fear in many Christians about coming to the table in an unworthy manner and so bringing judgment upon him or herself. As a pastor, 
I've certainly had conversations with people who have mistakenly refrained from communion because they feel too unclean, too unworthy, and then they fear the ramifications. To understand what Paul is saying here, it's worth unpacking what he means by examine. This Greek word for examine means to prove, to discern and test, to see if something is genuine or not. So to prove, discern and test, to see if a thing is genuine or not. This is not an instruction from Paul to look for and list off everything that's wrong with us in order to approach the table and then worrying if we've missed something and therefore might get judged and struck down with sickness. That is not what he's saying here. This is about examining yourself for genuineness of faith in the light of the truth and power of the cross. So what does that look like for us? What does it mean to approach the table with genuine faith? I don't know about you, but I'm usually all too well aware of what's happening in my life. We are usually aware of what we're struggling with. We're usually aware of what's happening in our relationships, our finances, our health. We know our circumstances. We know how crusty our heart has got, how disappointed we might feel or brokenhearted we are. Our ability to take these things to the table is what genuine faith looks like. Not trying to sort them out before coming to the table because surely that is completely missing the point. Every sin, every disease, every area of division, brokenness, grief and sorrow, it is all taken care of by this meal. But you do need to bring it to the table in honesty, in humility, and in repentance, which literally means unconditional surrender and turning towards God. In verse 31... Paul says, but if, we, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's rather a lot of talk about judgment and I'm not going to unpack all of that today Exactly. Those a lot of those words there are different type of words for judgment. I would encourage you to go looking and digging in the word yourself for that. What I want to say is that Paul is not referring to eating the meal rightly so you will be judged rightly. Rather, this passage again is about the proper acknowledgement that Jesus became sin for you and set you free from judgment, shame, and condemnation. Paul is warning the Corinthians that because they're coming to the table in an unworthy manner, 
without genuine faith and failing to acknowledge and properly value all that Christ accomplished for them on the cross, that they are still suffering the effects of rejection, sickness and condemnation in their life. This is not a punishment, but rather the flow-on effect of the failure to rightly discern the body. That is, Christ's body broken so that ours may be made whole. They were not appropriating nor valuing in their lives what was actually rightfully theirs through the cross of Christ. And so they were still stuck in their sin and its effects. What I want you to grab a hold of this morning is that you are free to come to the table. The table is a judgment-free zone. Absolutely, we need to approach the table with reverence and humility and aware of our need for a saviour with thanksgiving. But there is nothing about your humanity that should keep you at a distance from the table because that is the whole point. This is, again, I say, a covenant meal, a powerful meal, a meal that represents the fullness of all that Jesus paid the price for, for you. I'd like to invite the worship team back up if I can at this point. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are in need of healing or breakthrough, if you feel broken, unworthy, unhealthy, if you've lost hope, are discouraged or stuck in sin, if you're not sure about Jesus but you're intrigued and want to know more about him, if you're in a battle, if you're in a season of fruitfulness and prosperity in your life, whatever your situation is, you need to come to the table and there is a place for you at his table. The provision at this table will feed and nourish you. What has been supplied around this table will equip you, empower you, and give you fresh perspective in your life. We are going to take communion together today, you'll be glad to know, as we do each week. But I do want to encourage you that if you're in a battle right now, if you need breakthrough, if you're um, seeking the Lord for healing in your life, set aside a season to take communion each day. And in so doing, proclaim and make known the finished work of the cross over your life and over the life of your family. I'm going to invite the worship team to lead us in one final song. I know that for many of you it's really important for you to be able to take communion with your children. So um, 
while we're singing would be a great point, parents, if you would like to go and collect your kids from Sunday school to do that. And then after we've sung this song, we'll gather around the auditorium as we do each week to break bread together. This morning, I'd like to just get a bit cosy as family. So if those people next to you, whether holding a hand or just laying a gentle hand on their shoulder, and I just want to pray over us before we take the elements together. Father, thank you that there is a place for us at your table. Today, as we partake of the bread and the cup, we do so acknowledging that we are participating in the blood and the body of Christ. We declare and make known his death until he comes. We declare over our lives today the fullness of the finished work of the cross as we take communion. Jesus, you took our sin, our grief, our sorrow, our sicknesses and our diseases upon yourself. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was poured out for our past, present and future sins and the curse of sin was broken over our lives. Your blood speaks a better word over our life, Lord, than any other word. Thank you that every demonic assignment, curse and influence is rendered powerless because of your blood. Father, today, as we take communion, we acknowledge and value all that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And we receive in faith the fullness of that provision. In the name of Christ. Amen.